the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? The last what the hell of the 2020 hellish election season. Mark, what are we talking about? We're talking about the hellish election season, which is coming to an end. So we are uh, days away from uh, the final voting, because actually the voting has been going on for uh, quite some time. I've already cast my vote, but it's fascinating because we truly don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday. Right now, Biden is leading in the polls, but the race is tightening. It's tightened in a lot of the swing states uh, that are going to decide this race, even though Biden's lead is greater in the national polls than Hillary Clinton's was. And many of the king's swing states is tighter than it was back then. Uh, so it's entirely possible that Trump could pull this out, or it's entirely possible that Joe Biden could uh, have a um, massive victory. What do you think is going to happen, Danny? You know, there comes a time in the election when uh, I just start looking at stuff that sort of pleases my pre-existing prejudices <laughs> as opposed to, to everything else. So I'm really focused on the Senate. Uh, you know, I don't think it'll surprise anybody to hear. I'm really hoping the Republicans keep the Senate. And then honestly, you know, I, I will be much less concerned about who is at the White House. Now, you know, that said, I know a lot of people feel much more strongly than that. I don't know. I think I still think this is Joe Biden's to lose. He has successfully, I think, helped make this a referendum on Donald Trump just by hiding. And um, and Donald Trump yeah. is, you know, has been enough of a schmuck over the last four years to keep people voting in a lot of ways uh, against him. So it should be a walk in the park for Joe Biden. And it'll certainly be a smack in the face to him if he loses. If you think about the last year, the worst pandemic since 1918, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, worst social unrest uh, since the 1960s. The fact that this is even still a close election is remarkable uh, statement uh, about Trump and his coalition. He shouldn't even be in it, whether the state of the economy and the state of the pandemic and everything else is, but he is still in it. Um, let's do a thought experiment, which is if, if Donald Trump loses and if Biden loses, why, right? So my sense is that if Donald Trump loses this election, it will be not because of policies. It'll not because not because of things he did in the White House. It'll be because of the things he said. It'll be because of the, the Donald Trump we saw in the first debate as opposed to the second debate, that he never in his presidency made a concerted effort to expand his base rather than feed his base. And there are a lot of people out there who benefited from his policies, who think they're doing better than they were four years ago and still are not planning to vote for him or say they're not planning to vote for him. And maybe they will. Maybe they'll come home on an election day and vote in their self-interest. But until very recently, he's not made a great concerted effort to win those people over. If Biden loses, we're going to look back on this basement strategy as an absolute disaster. And, uh, you know, the idea that you can take four days off, 14 days before the election to prepare for the debate is just a stunning uh, statement. And he's making a gamble. It's a real bet that it's OK to cede the stage to Donald Trump because I want to make this a referendum on Trump anyway. So the more people see Trump, the better for me. And uh, that's a real danger because 
he, in that debate the other night, he really, Trump drew blood, for example, in Pennsylvania on the oil industry when Biden said that, yes, he wants to get rid of the oil industry. And, you know, Donald Trump was in Pennsylvania in three different cities. He did three rallies about an hour and a half each. So you're talking about almost five hours of Donald Trump on the stump in Pennsylvania, beating the crap out of Joe Biden over that. And Joe Biden's in his basement, not doing anything. So that's a real bet that either is going to pay off and he's going to look like a genius or it's not going to pay off and and people are going to look back and say what a debacle that was. The bottom line is, I think that's the only race that Joe Biden can run. I don't think Joe Biden can do three rallies. I don't think Joe Biden can do three rallies just because, you know, I don't think he can manage. I don't think his health will hold up for that. But I also think that Trump has made so many serious mistakes that he's made this much easier for Biden. And, you know, so, yeah, yeah, you can say Joe Biden's helped make this a referendum. But, you know, the Donald Trump that called very charmingly into our podcast, that Donald Trump, if he had been on show the whole time, he'd be walking away with it. He hasn't been on display, as you said. And so he helped Biden's strategy in a lot of ways. He did, though I must say the second debate, it was very much more the Trump we saw in our podcast. And if you watch his rallies, you know, and I guess there's some voters who just never tune into a Donald Trump rally, and I get that. Um, but he is putting on, but he is putting that, I'm watching them, I, I do it because I have to, it's my part of my job as a Fox News commentator to pay attention to what the president says and comment on it. He is very charming, just like he was in that debate. And what's fascinating is that the Democrats have spent the last four years and in much of this campaign, making the case that Donald Trump is a racist and trying to make people uncomfortable with the idea of electing a racist. He's actually doing better with African-Americans, doing better with Hispanic voters, all the groups that they're supposed to be alienating him from. He's actually doing better with those people, despite everything that happened with George Floyd and the racial unrest today. He's got stronger African-American support than he did the first time around. Florida, I think he went from 35% to 50% Hispanic support. We just spent four years talking about how Donald Trump hates Hispanics. Well, apparently Hispanics don't agree. The hemorrhaging has been among suburban women, among seniors, among people who were part of his original coalition, if he was able to hold on to those people and maybe expand that vote while also making those inroads, he'd be running away with this election. So if he loses, I think that will be the failure to try and expand his coalition and to appeal to people who maybe didn't vote for him the first time, but might have voted for him the second time because he ended up being a pretty good president in a lot of ways. Well, on mute, as you say, look, you know, I think there's really only one thing we can say less than a week out. And that is the same thing we said in 2016. We don't understand the electorate as well as we say we do. We don't understand. I mean that, you know, people always want to assign views to others based on their demographic, based on their color, based on their ethnicity, based on their race or their religion. First of all, that is just vile. But second of all, the notion that you can just lump, you know, all black men into the same place, apart from being degrading, it's just wrong. They have different things going on in their minds than the commentators on TV suggest that they do. You know, they're actually Americans and they're thinking about this and they're voting based on interests that are perhaps not wrapped up entirely with their skin color. And that's the way it should be. But it is amazing that we still have this conversation four years after Donald Trump won the first time by appealing to a group of people who no one knew existed. 
Oh, he did. So, you know, maybe he knows something we don't know. But anyway, we've got the perfect person to help us entangle all of this and to give us a crystal ball to look into for uh, what's going to happen next Tuesday. Sean Trendy is an American journalist. He's a political analyst. His specialty is elections analysis. He's the senior elections analyst at Real Clear Politics. He's been all over the networks. We talk about his work all the time. He's also a visiting fellow at AEI. And who better to have right before the elections? Here's Sean. Well, Sean, welcome to the podcast. No, thanks for having me. So we are literally days away from the 2020 election, which everyone, whether they're Republican or Democrat, seems to agree is the most important election of our lifetimes. Donald Trump is trailing in the polls, but tightening. Does he have a path to victory? Well, first, let me say, thank God we are almost to the end of this interminable election season and exhausting too. It's bizarre because it's exhausting. And yet, if you look at the polls, very little has happened. Uh, Joe Biden's lead is probably the most stable lead in the modern era between six to eight points. With that said, the question, does Donald Trump have a path to victory? I think you have to look at things and say yes. Now, it's not an easy path to victory, but it's basically the path to victory that he took in 2016, which is that there are people missing from the poll samples. The pollsters didn't, in fact, fix their errors from the last time around, and he ends up overperforming. Because if you look at the state-level polls, they look a lot like they did in 2016. First of all, Sean, thank you so much for being with us. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you about this stuff. So let's talk about Joe Biden for a second. And by the way, amen, this has been an endless year. It's been an endless election, and I cannot wait for it to be over. And I'm betting Joe Biden feels the same way. So he's run a pretty unconventional campaign. I mean, he's been in his basement. You know, that's a Donald Trump slam, but it's true. He hasn't done many events. He calls a cap on his day about noontime. And yet he's leading in the poll. So, number one, are people voting for him or are they voting against Donald Trump? Yeah, the the polls are pretty consistent on this. They ask you, what is your vote? Is it a vote for Joe Biden or a vote against Donald Trump? If you look at the Republican side, you know, they ask, they word it in reverse. But people overwhelmingly say they're voting for Donald Trump among Republicans. When you look on the Democratic side, it is, you know, kind of split 50-50 whether people are voting for Joe Biden or voting against Trump. Back in 2004, there was a saying, you can't beat someone with no one. That was the knock on Kerry that like his supporters wouldn't turn out. And they did, but more of Bush's supporters turned out. So at the end of the day, I don't know how much we read into that, except that perhaps Joe Biden won't have as much of a mandate if he wins as he might be if he were making a stronger case for himself. Look, but winning is winning. Possession is nine tenths of the law. You know, hating on a candidate generally isn't a pathway to victory. If it were, Bill Clinton would have been defeated. If it were, Barack Obama might have been defeated. It didn't get people there. Is that a problem for Biden? I guess two things first. You know, E.E. E. Schottschneider had a famous saying about mandates. The electorate is confined to two, it only gets to speak every four years. And when it speaks, it's confined to two, four, two words, yes or no. And so I think your, your instinct there is right, that possession is nine-tenths of the law. It's a question of legitimacy, and it's a question of what you can feel comfortable as a party doing. Like, I, I think given how 
2008 was run, Barack Obama felt comfortable kind of pressing the envelope of what was considered possible in politics. Now, he ended up over-interpreting the results, but this isn't going to be an election where Joe Biden comes in, and I think there is a strong storyline as to what a Biden presidency is supposed to look like. And I do think that'll make a difference in how it plays out. On the question of whether you can beat someone with nothing and how that plays out, yeah, I mean... People are going to crawl over broken glass twice to vote for Donald Trump. Like, I have no doubt the people responding to the polls who are saying they're voting for Donald Trump are voting for Donald Trump. Possibly more people that aren't responding to the polls, but I'm sure we'll get to that later. The people who are saying they're voting for Joe Biden because they just don't like Donald Trump, I would imagine a lot of them, almost all of them will come to the polls, but it's not the same motivator as I love this guy, which was the motivator for someone like Barack Obama. Joe Biden took four days off the campaign trail to prepare for Thursday's debate. The other day, on Monday of this week, Donald Trump did three rallies in Pennsylvania and Joe Biden took the day off. If he loses, is this the modern equivalent of Hillary not going to Wisconsin? That people are going to look back and just see this uh, basement campaign, this failure to, to go out as really a huge strategic error? Yeah, I understand why Biden is doing this. And I think the theory of the case is, look, people's opinions of Trump are made up and most people don't like him. So first do no harm. And that does seem sensible, but there's an old saying about prevent offense. It it prevents you from winning. And that's the risk that Joe Biden is running right now that, yeah, Donald Trump is out there just, you know, pounding the pavement, running multiple rallies a day, whether he should be doing that under the pandemic is a different story, but he is. And, and what, where it really kind of starts to puzzle me is Democrats have traditionally been very dependent on things like door knocking, the get out the vote effort, running the buses to churches and assisted living facilities and getting people to the vote that way. But you know, if Joe Biden is doing drive-in events like one a day, can he get that energy going? Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's going to be one of the knocks on him uh, if he doesn't win, is that, you know, you, you didn't do what you needed to do to get your base out. One of the things that is really interesting, you know, there's always conventional wisdom about this, the most important election of our lifetimes, like the last election, which was the most important election of our lifetimes, like every freaking election, which is the most important <laughs> of our lifetime. And that is that, that fundamentally the formula for Republicans is no longer going to work, that the nation is actually demographically trending Democrat, that I'm going to put this the way that one of my uh, Democratic friends would, um, that the stupid white people who voted for uh, Donald Trump uh, aren't going to vote for him twice, and there aren't enough of them to make up for the smart suburban women who just aren't going to vote for him. So could you just talk a little bit about this whole group and throw in, you know, Cuban Americans and Puerto Rican Americans and Black Americans? And by the way, don't let us forget to get to Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> There's something going on with rappers, and I don't understand it, but but we, we, we can get to that. There have been like four that have endorsed Donald Trump in the last week. I, I, Anyway, I'm a longtime skeptic of the demographics is destiny. I mean, I, I wrote a book about it almost a decade ago, which doesn't seem possible, but here we are. People have been making these demographic arguments about the Democratic Party for 20 years now. Like Emerging Democratic Majority, the book is about 20 years old. And at a certain point, you have to say, where is it? Like it, It's always around the corner. 
right? Like, okay, this is the election where it's going to happen. Oh, no, like we elected Donald Trump and the largest Republican majority for a president in, in almost 70 years in, in a Republican Senate, which is what happens in 2016. Like, I don't see how you square Donald Trump winning in 2016 with these demographic arguments, because it's not supposed to be possible. So I'm just, you know, the Republican Party top to bottom was as strong in 2014 and 2016 as it has ever been. Now, what does this mean for 2020? You know, look, the yard signs argument, like my political scientist friends' eyes, if they're listening to this, will be rolling back into the back of their head. But man, I live kind of on the outer limits of Columbus. And if I go south towards Columbus, I mean, there's Biden signs everywhere. You know, it's kind of the yuppie suburbs and and people love Joe Biden. If I go north, I mean, it's like a Trump boat parade, except with farms like (laughs) there. There are Trump signs everywhere and not just like like people have made their own Trump signs. People have gotten like four by eight sheets of plywood and stitched them together and made eight by 16 foot. Like the enthusiasm is still there. I can tell you that much. You know, at the same time, I think Trump does have to worry about the erosion that he suffered in the suburbs. If he hadn't suffered this erosion in the suburbs, he would be en route to pasting Biden in this election. But, you know, the the reasons that he has lost ground here are, are well rehearsed. Kind of the X factor in this entire election, and one of the things I think analysts are kind of on the edge of their seat even a little bit about is, okay, what is going to happen with Hispanic voters and African-American voters. You know, the polling right now suggests, you know, uh, people thought that Trump was just going to collapse with Hispanics in 2016, and yet he actually did a little bit better than Mitt Romney among them. And he did better than Mitt Romney or John McCain among African-Americans. Now you can say, okay, Barack Obama wasn't on top of the ticket, but, but that's where this election becomes interesting because, you know, if he hits 11 or 12% among African Americans, which the polls are suggesting is possible, if he goes up to, you know, low to mid 30s among Hispanics, suddenly he's performing about as well as George W. Bush was in his campaigns, except with a very, very different message. And so I think if things work out like that. And there's no guarantees, right? I mean, we're talking about small, small cross tabs, large error margins. But if things work out like that, I think we're going to have to reconsider a lot about what the Republican Party needs to do to get non-white voters on board, or at least what it can do to get non-white voters on board. Well, it's something of a myth that the, that he was elected by the white working class. He was elected by the working class, but there were a lot of minorities in that working class coalition. Um, it wasn't it wasn't just whites who felt that their interests were being uh, were being ignored by both parties before the 2016 election. And as you point out, he's made progress with non-white voters. He placed a huge bet on African-Americans in the in the convention. The convention programming was almost designed to, to win over African-American votes and he's making progress with what, with black men. And Joe Biden is supposed to be the guy who was gonna bring out the Obama coalition that didn't come out for Hillary because he was Obama's vice president, but he's doing worse with African-Americans than Hillary did and particularly with young African-American voters. So, I mean, if the Obama coalition doesn't come out for Biden and Trump is able to make some inroads with that community, could that be decisive? 
It really could. I mean, there's some problems there because the Hispanic and African-American communities aren't very efficiently distributed in the Electoral College, right? Lots of Hispanics live in California, which is blue, so it doesn't matter. Lots live in Texas, which traditionally is red, although this election, it might he might get saved by Hispanic voters. But you hit the nail on the head. It's younger voters, especially younger male voters, that he seems to be making some degree of inroads. And it gets back to a, a fight I had, a big one back in 2013, where you know we had the famous autopsy after Mitt Romney lost and a group of uh, Republican strategists got together and said, you know, to, to win elections, Republicans have to do outreach to Hispanics. They need to embrace comprehensive immigration reform, so forth and so on. And, and I read that and, and look, I. I independent of demographic and political considerations. I, I mean, I like immigration reform. I'm, I'm probably, I'm pretty liberal on that. But I looked at this and just thought to myself, like, first off, you're never going to out identity politic the Democrats. Like, however far left you go on immigration, they're able to go further to the left. It, it's sort of every now and again, there's every cycle, there's stories about how the Democrats are going to make inroads with evangelicals and they do this outreach effort. And I just think to myself, like, no, no, because however far right they go on issues that appeal to evangelicals, Republicans will say thank you for those issues and, and move further rightward and still win uh, 75% of that vote. So what I kind of was thinking was that, you know, you can appeal to Hispanics as Hispanics or African-Americans as African-Americans. I don't know that that works. Or you can make the more class-based appeal, you know, become a little more economically populist in your rhetoric. And, you know, don't, I, I, I liked Mitt Romney. I like him as a person and, and, as, and as a senator, but at the same time, like he was not a good fit for working class outreach in the way he presented himself and his mannerisms and his policies. So it, long story short, to wrap up, Donald Trump does manage to make these inroads with African-Americans and Hispanics. I think it's going to be a good indicator that, yeah, economic issues are probably the way for the Republicans to go if they're hoping to make serious inroads. So you brought up Texas. I, I mean, Texas for me is, is Brazil. You know, it's the hope for the Democrats that just never, ever happens. Um, <laughs> I think I've used that analogy before more than once. But, so you know, Beto O'Rourke, he was meant to be the man. And, of course, he wasn't the man, although it was close. I mean, it was a three-point victory for, for Ted Cruz. So, okay, Texas probably goes GOP for the presidential. But it raises the question where are we going to end up in the Senate? Because this, I, I, you know, in my religious obeisance to the RCP site, I saw that one more Democratic seat got moved into the toss-up aisle, and it's now 46-47 for the Democrats to the Republicans. What's going to happen? Hmm. Tell me everything. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Texas is interesting. I mean, I, I think Cornyn will probably win fairly handily, but that is a that's a state that's changing. And the thing a lot of people don't understand about Texas, you know, they think of of dusty roads and grizzled cowboys and longhorn cattle, and, and that's all there. Like you go to Texas, you're going to drive around, you're going to see that. But not a lot of people live where that is. Something like 75% of the vote in Texas is cast in Dallas, Fort Worth, Houston, or San Antonio. Voting Texas is very much a suburban uh, affair. So as the suburbs move against the Republican Party nationally, it swings Texas very, very fast. And that's why it's gone from not Romney winning it by 20 to being sort of a toss up uh, this time around. 
As for the Senate, we have a fair number of races in the toss-up category because we think there's a lot of uncertainty in this election, but not all the toss-ups are created equally. I think at the end of the day, if I had to bet, I think you're either going to have a 51-49 Republican majority, 50-50, which is a Manchin majority, which is its own beast, I think, or a 51-49 Democratic majority. It's going to come down to two seats, Cal Cunningham versus Tom Tillis in North Carolina and Joni Ernst versus Teresa Greenfield in Iowa. I think that's the whole ball game. how those two races go. And right now they're looking like nail biters. So Collins, I just have a hard time. Yeah, I, I, I would I would actually probably bet on Martha McSally in Arizona before I bet on Susan Collins. Really? I, I just think we've become so polarized. It's amazing. In 2008, Susan Collins against a credible alternative. I mean, a, a five term congressman, I think, ran 20 points ahead of John McCain in the state of Maine. But we're, we're just so polarized. And I, I think, you know, the Trump presidency combined with her votes for the Trump Supreme Court justices up until this one, just combined with ranked choice voting, really sort of put the nail in the coffin for her, I think. What do you make of the whole shy Trump voter thing? Uh, do you think that, that that's a thing, actually? I mean, when we had President Trump on the podcast the other day, and he pointed out that uh, a lot of there was a poll that said a lot of people actually think that the people lie to pollsters and that uh, a lot of people are afraid to say that they support Trump. Um, and most people think their neighbors are going to vote for Trump. <laughs> so the, you had a lot of arguments why the polls were wrong and why there's a shy Trump vote. Do you think there is a shy Trump vote out there? I think there is. I'm not sure how big it is. Um, but I do think there is is some of it. You know, the, the one thing that makes me the most nervous about the polls is actually the poll data showing Trump down uh, among senior citizens. You can tell a just so story about why that is right. The coronavirus and, you know, Joe Biden is, is elderly and white and people have made fun of him. And so now they're mad at Trump people. But, you know, I think you can tell another story that, you know, it's it's older white people who listen to Fox News. And when someone calls from CBS or like, click, nope, not talking to you. The New York mm -hmm. Times, click, no, not talking to you. And if that's the case, there's nothing you can do about it. Like I said, I, I'm, I'm not it would just be strange for voters over the age of 65 to go from, you know, being a, a group that hasn't voted Democrats since 2000 to suddenly voting the same way that millennials are voting, which some of these polls are showing. You know, at the end of the day, Trump supporters, the strongest indicator of them in 2016 was actually low levels of social trust. Even after you accounted for attitudes towards Hispanics and Muslims, low levels of social trust, thinking the system didn't work for them, people didn't care about people like them was the greatest predictor, even in the Republican primary. And those are also the people that aren't gonna wanna talk to the New York Times. I saw the piece that you did, which I thought was terrific and have appropriated your ideas in it and repeated them as my own, as recently as an event just uh, just today uh, about early voting. So, you know, again, it seems like there's no amount of times we can be shocked and amazed in an election by the number of early voters or how it's really going to turn out differently for party fill in the blank because of these early voters. You make the case in your piece that early voters are people who would have voted on election day, but voted early. We're up to more than 60 million early votes. Make the argument. 
it is so tempting to look at early votes, right? Because we've been talking about this election. I mean, since the day Donald Trump was elected, we've been talking about his re-election. And now we finally have votes. You know, they're not opened, but you just want to look at them and, and try to draw some type of conclusion for them. But, but the problem is there is like a four-part equation and we only know one part, right? It's like the number of Democrats and Republicans who vote early times the way that they vote plus the number of Republicans and Democrats who vote on election day times the way that they vote. If you had all four parts of those, you would know how the election turned out. But all we have is the number of Republicans and Democrats who vote. We don't know how they're voting. More importantly, we don't know who is voting on election day, whether you're just taking people who are election day voters. And the the political science is famous for taking really exciting concepts and coming up with boring terms. Here, they've taken a boring concept and come up with an exciting term. They call it cannibalizing the election day vote. And so, you know, there's actually a a lengthy line of research in political science suggesting that that's exactly what happens, that you're just taking partisans, people who, you know, have made up their mind a long time ago, getting them to vote on a different day. The big problem with it is we have these missing pieces. We want desperately to see the big picture. And so just like you look up at a cloud and it kind of looks like a seagull, but it only has one wing and it has eight tendrils instead of legs and it's missing its beak. But, you know, I still think it looks like a seagull. People do the same thing with early voting. You know, people look at the vote totals in North Carolina like, oh, Democrats are up 10 points. That's great. You know, they're going to win. And that's a tempting thing to do. But when you go back and you look at 2016, at this point in early voting, Democrats were up 13 points in North Carolina. So they're actually running behind. Let me ask you a quick follow up on that. One of the sort of under um, promoted stories of this election, and maybe deservedly so, I want to hear from you, is the Republican efforts to sign up, register new voters, which has been, according to the articles I've read, pretty amazing. Is that a factor? So it depends what's going on. It's one of those things we won't know until the day after Election Day, unfortunately. But there's two scenarios. But but it's good to kind of know what the scenarios are, and, and maybe you can make up your mind better than I can. The first scenario is that all that's going on is they're taking people who have voted Republican for the last 20 years, but been registered as Democrats and convincing them to register as Republicans now. So nothing changes except the party label. The other possibility and the more intriguing possibility is that this is a function of Democrats not running a door knocking campaign and not running get out the vote efforts because of COVID and that that is allowing Republicans to kind of get the drop on them uh, with this. It's probably some of both. And even if it's just some of both, that's, that's a potential advantage for Republicans. The other impact of COVID is, of course, this Democratic push for mail-in voting, which seems to me sort of suicidal in a lot of ways, because if you urge your voters to vote by mail, putting aside any like claims of fraud, votes by mail have a much higher failure rate than votes in-person voting. Even if there's no wrongdoing whatsoever, uh, people sign it wrong, they don't get it notarized, they don't put a stamp on it, they don't get the date on it, they don't have the right identification, uh, they can't go to a poll worker and ask, hey, is this how I fill it out or is that how I fill it out? And I mean, I think there was like an MIT study of the 2008 election, which had much lower amount of mail-in votes, but it had like a failure rate of up to almost 21% uh, of the ballots. Could this really sink the Democrats that they made such a big bet on this and uh, a lot of their votes aren't going to get counted? 
Yeah, that's why you've seen the Democratic push in these states to get the election laws, I'll be kind and say reinterpreted, Um, (laughs) you know, so we interpret you must put a signature down as saying, well, but in COVID you don't. You know, that, that's kind of the, the push for of these guests. I'm not a big voter fraud guy, and I, I'm actually all for making voting easy. But uh, at the same time, that's exactly the subtext, that Democrats realize that they've pushed their voters to vote by mail. The Republicans have not pushed their voters to vote by mail. And when you look at the failure rates, as you say, that they tend to be very, not very high, but they're, they're significant enough that in a close election, they can make the difference. As part and parcel of all this mail-in voting and all of the questions about voter suppression and the Supreme Court's role and Amy Coney Barrett being confirmed and, you know, we can all get very excited about everything and be distracted. One of the big questions, though, is are we going to know? The worst thing about 2000 was just this endless, drawn-out battle and the uncertainty. And I think that the questions about legitimacy that it forced on the population that was already, you know, sort of having doubts about government. What do you think? Are we going to know on Tuesday night? I sure hope so. What I, what I tell people, <laughs> if you're a praying person or you want to send good karma or good vibes or whatever, this is your target. Florida will count its votes very quickly. They always do. They're allowed to pre-process ballots, absentee ballots, so they know what's tossed and what's not. It goes very quickly. If Trump loses Florida, it's over. There are no realistic paths to victory for him where he loses Florida. Because if he loses Florida, he's lost a bunch of other more Democratic swing states. If he wins Florida by more than, say, three points, he's almost certainly going to win the election. Again, you know, he won it by one point into 2016. So you assume if he's doing better there, he's probably doing about the same or better elsewhere. It's that middle range that if he narrowly wins Florida on election night, if it's called, but he's up by one or two, that means we're probably going to be litigating absentee ballots in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Michigan for the next month. The example I use for people about what that can be like in the 2008 election between Norm Coleman and Al Franken, infamous case of the lizard people ballot. Someone marked a ballot for Al Franken, and then they also wrote in lizard people. So the question is, how do you count that? And and it's not entirely clear what you do in a situation like that. I actually need to go back and look up how it was ultimately decided. But but that's the types of questions we're going to be fighting over, like the fate of the country. If I had to choose between Al Franken and the lizard people, (laughs) let me say, lizard people, you have my vote. (laughs) <laughs> well, he's on the ballot for the Democrats, isn't he? That's mean. That's too mean. My, my exit question is, what about these reluctant Trump voters? So like 20% of Trump's vote in 2016 were people who said they didn't like him, right? And so you've got all these really conflicting polls where 56% of Americans say they're better off now than they were four years ago under Obama-Biden. 49% say they agree with Trump over Biden on the issues, but your RCP average as of today is 43.4 are voting for Trump. So there's like a big gap of people who like Trump's policies, happy with how they're doing under Donald Trump, even in the middle of a pandemic, but not planning to vote for him. Why is that? And did he make a mistake in not making a bigger effort to win those people over? Yeah, I don't know if you read Ross Duthat's New York Times column a couple of days ago, where he kind of has a discussion with himself about voting. 
and the like it's like the devil on his shoulder versus his mind and he's giving the reasons why he can't vote for donald trump and the devil is basically saying like look at the policies like he is giving you everything you asked for and i think there are a lot of voters like that i, I will be honest my expectation and i'm getting nervous because now it is time to kind of see if it happens my expectation has been that this race is going to close at the end like in the final week because i think those people come home uh, at the end of the day, traditionally, people who approve of the president vote for the president. I can tell, again, it just so story why this year might be different, but this time is different, has a poor track record. So for now, I'm betting that they come home. Excellent. Okay. And my exit question, the thing that I actually hit refresh on most often is the 2016 battleground states performance of Hillary Clinton versus the 2016 current polling of Biden versus Trump to see. And right now, it looks like Biden's stakes are and his his stock is going up rather than down. Am I watching it too closely? So this kind of gets to why I'm, I'm a little nervous about what my expectation has been, because there's two stories about what happened in 2016. The, the first story, the kind of popular story is that you know, there was the Comey letter and that caused a stampede away from Hillary. I'd always been more partial to the story that it was just Republicans coming home at the end. Hillary was never going to win by 10 points or whatever. And that's why it was closing. But like you said, the race in 2016 was closing harder than it is currently closing. So I could be wrong. Um, this is this is just one of those. I'll have a better feel on Friday, but if this race doesn't get down to like a six and a half, five and a half point lead for Biden nationally by Friday, I'll start to think no, it's really not going to happen. Final digression for me. Danny's going to roll her eyes, um, but you had a fascinating Twitter thread on uh, the death of Eddie Van Halen. You, uh, little notes to most people, you are a, actually a uh, a hard rock guitarist yourself. So question number one, can you play Eruption? And two, was Eddie Van Halen the greatest rock guitarist of all time? I could play Eruption back in the day. I'm pretty sure I no longer can. Um, <laughs> I have not kept up with the uh, finger dexterity drills over the years. Um, was Eddie Van Halen the best? I, I would still have to go with Hendrix over him, but I, I would easily put Eddie. Me too. Thank you. I would easily put Eddie Van Halen in the top three. Certainly the most influential. I mean, he changed the way the instrument was played. Uh, a generation of guitarists copied him. Every guitarist who picked up the guitar in the 1980s and for most of the 1990s picked it up thinking to themselves, I want to sound like that guy. And that is certainly a mark of greatness. We appreciate uh, your joining us for the podcast. And uh, we're, we'll hope you'll come back on after the election to explain to us uh, what the hell happened. Happy to do so. <laughs> So I don't know who's going to win uh, the election, Danny, but the election for best rock guitarist of all time is definitely Eddie Van Halen. I don't know. I'm still in the Jimi Hendrix school of best rock guitarists, but I understand <laughs> that you teen boys like to like to talk about this uh, as you do your, what is that called? Where you strum the guitar in the air, your air playing. Air guitar. <laughs> Air, air, your sad air guitar in your mom's basement. Oh my yeah. God! You I, your age and your uh, and your like cultural uh, ignorance. <laughs> I'm not a teen boy, and I never was, and I never will be. 
bottom line from Sean, we really don't know who's going to win the election. Not just that we don't know who's going to win the election, but we really don't feel sure who's going to vote for whom. Well, you know, I think uh, we've done enough prognosticating and uh, we're coming up to the final decision when the actual American people get to make the actual decision. Uh, Let's hope that we find out on Tuesday and that we are not doing three or four more weeks of podcasts on how the election is going to turn out and we could start uh, analyzing the results and what it means for our country domestically and in foreign policy. They would be nice to uh, turn back to away from politics towards the repercussions of politics, which is what how we make this country stronger and safer, which is what we all want to do. A fine reminder, and everybody get out there, go and vote. Vote by mail if you have to, but not too late. Vote at your polling place if you can. Wear your mask. And, uh, and we will see you after. After. Please let it be so. After the elections. Let us know if you have any questions, concerns, complaints about Mark technical issues for Alexa, and otherwise take care as always. We should have said, Alexa, who's going to win the election? (laughs) (laughs) That's a different Alexa. Bye. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 